0: southern skies online media
1: playing crazy down under's coverage of the 2013 australian international air show is proudly sponsored by Jetride australia oz runways red baron adventures and sennheiser in conjunction with Avplan, a classic flight bag, Eco 2000
0: and World Flight Planner. Well, g'day folks, and welcome back to Playing Crazy Down Under, episode 102, our Avalon 2013 series, day two wrap-up. And uh, boy, a much better day today, and the whole team is back with us, except for ATC Ben, who's uh, Grant uh, noticeably not here. What have we done with him?
2: Uh, Well, we packed him away and sent him away. Uh, He's actually gone off to hang out with the rest of the uh, Aircraft Ground Operations gang, who are um, catching up and having a reunion, because they haven't seen each other for a very long time. So they all get together and have a nice,
0: quiet night, just hanging out and chatting. Oh, I'm sure they're sitting around discussing knitting or something like that. Um, As you well.
2: Know? Very likely. Um, knitting a few yarns, I think, would be probably a
0: pretty good description. Of course, we've got Ben Jones with us, uh, Anthony Simmons, the infrequent flyer. And uh, to fill in uh, tonight for ATC, Ben, all the way from Adelaide, and we're lucky to have him here given the weather, it's Baz Sheffers. Baz, uh, tell us about your flight across from Adelaide today.
3: Oh, it was fun. It started uh, great with... Uh about 20 knots in the tail, just flying along. Came am uh, screaming past Horsham on the way uh, to uh, Leftbridge, where I was going to get some more fuel. And uh, if I couldn't get into Avalon, I would have taken a car from there. Uh, but uh, halfway between uh, Horsham and there, I just hit a wall of cloud and oh, I had to sit it out in uh, Ballarat for about two and a half, three hours. Did it hurt when you hit that wall? Uh, no, I, I didn't hit it, actually. Ah, yeah, just I, checking. I, I came close to one, but I tried to go around. A little bit of uh, scud running, I guess, Bez? A little bit of scud running, but uh, got in safe and uh, had some uh, pot noodles and uh, and a a drink and uh, just sat around waiting for the weather to get better. And then uh, I was pretty lucky because Avalon East, uh, the normal GA airport for light aircraft uh, that built, well, kept running right next to Avalon uh, every uh, show, uh, was closed because it was too uh, soggy with all the rain. But because of that, I could get into uh, Avalon, Maine, and manage to squeeze in just before the afternoon air show. And did you make the uh,
2: first exit on the left, uh, which is uh, technically, um, I think, on the other side of the
3: threshold? If I'd landed in the perfectly usable undershoot for a light aircraft like me, I would have been able to make that. But uh, uh, no, it's right actually at the threshold in Avalon.
0: Well, I'm, uh, I'm glad you've made it, mate, and I hear that uh, your, your celebrity status has actually earned you a trip up into the Avalon Tower so that uh, even though you're here in the Oz runway's capacity, I think we might have to arm you with a recorder uh, should you make that trip.
3: I'll, uh, I'll give it a go. Uh, who knows? I might even convince them to get some more people to uh, come up there to have a look for themselves.
0: Absolutely. We should talk to the air traffic controller if he wasn't at his uh, you know, AA meeting or something.
2: Yeah, yeah. I think uh, we'll see what state he's in tomorrow for a quick chat about that.
0: Okay, well, a few highlights uh, from today's flying. And it was good that the weather had cleared a bit because it means uh, actually there could be some flying and we saw a lot more jets in the air. Uh, of course, the KC-30 was in the air and I was in it, which was a wonderful thing. Yeah, and we might talk about yeah, that a bit later. Yeah. Whatever,
2: you were in that. But well, actually,
0: I- nobody wants to talk about it except for me, but I did I did uh, manage to grab an interview while we were on board, and we'll play that in the second half of the show. Now, the downside of that, of course, was that uh, while we were waiting to uh, push back from the Avalon Terminal, the raptors went out and flew, and I couldn't see them. But uh, in Frequent Flyer, I believe you, amongst many others, were uh, quite impressed by that display. Uh, more than impressed,
1: I was actually working, doing a little bit of editing for the show, and I'm in the media centre, and it's not so much you can hear it as you feel the plane coming over. And I thought, that sounds a little bit different. So I decided rather quickly to go out and have a look. Everybody else at Avalon also decided to go out and have a look. And there was just this huge push down the main drag and nobody moved. They just stood up looking at the sky.
2: It was incredible. It was a uh, single F-22 Raptor. It was doing its... uh cloud-constrained low-show, so it didn't do the 2,000-foot uh, downwards uh, flat spiral, it didn't do the vertical uh, hover or the tail slide, but what it was doing was absolutely incredible and very wonderfully noisy.
0: Well, of course, uh, you know, if our US correspondent, David Vanderhoof, were here, he'd uh, he'd be laughing at us because apparently he's seen that routine about 3,000 times, but uh, very impressive for all of us here in Australia because uh, the Raptors have not uh, done a display. Of course, last time they were here, they stayed static on the ground. So uh, I'm hoping that uh, when they go up tomorrow that uh, I won't be, you know, flying around with the RAF again and I might get a, a chance to look at it myself.
2: Well, you know, I've got to say, uh, given what may be coming up in the US with uh, sequestration, it may be that we actually. Wind up seeing them more recently than some Americans.
0: Yeah well, yeah, well, maybe the rest should buy some. In fact, there's been lots of talk about the F-35 here this week, and uh, maybe mm. I think the government needs to go back and, and twist the arms of the Americans and say, you know, start making some more F-22s and and, and sell them to us.
2: Yeah, well, although I uh, missed the the press conference today. Apparently, the uh, Lockheed Martin presentation on the F-35 uh, a little bit mushy. It was one of the quotes from one of the guys there, and apparently it got really interesting when the uh, pointed questions started flying from the uh, media scrum, and uh, some of the folks there, including apparently the uh, chief test pilot, weren't really able to answer it. Now, I wasn't there, it's hearsay, but I need to look into this a bit more, but from what I'm hearing, it didn't look good for Lockheed Martin and the F-35 with some of the answers. It was uh, almost, but not quite entirely, I have no clear recollection of that fact, sir.
0: Oh, dear. Well, if nothing else, Grant, that'll give us plenty to talk about over the uh, the course of this year, I think. Uh, it seems to me that the, the longer the, the F-35 program drags on, the more controversial it becomes.
2: I think the way things are going, uh, I'm working on getting a couple of people in with a bit of F-35 experience to have a chat, uh, one of whom is uh, quite concerned about the weight being carried around for uh, supporting various different types. Uh, there's a lot of detail in there, but we'll cover that in another episode.
0: Absolutely. Well, coming up in this episode, uh, of course, you guys have been out uh, today at the the A319, the ACJ, a rather uh, opulent, uh, well fitted out uh, Airbus 319. Uh, I've been talking to the crew from the UAV Challenge, uh, an impressive uh, bunch of high school students there that have designed their own UAV to uh, perform some tasks, and uh, they've done very well and won some awards with that. Uh, Grant, you've also been talking to the crew from In Situ.
2: That's correct. They have the ScanEagle ISR drone. It's an um, intelligence surveillance reconnaissance drone. And that one now also has a bigger brother
0: called Integrator. Fantastic. So that interview will be coming up in the second block of the show. I've also got my uh, interview with the uh, the FA 18 pilot there who was on board the, uh, the tanker, explaining to all of us uh, how that process worked. We've also got uh, in the keyhole with Papa Smurf, Timbo's Tarmac. So uh, another great uh, day at Avalon uh, 2013. Let's go.
2: Captain Robin Percy, welcome Hello. to uh, Plane Crazy Down Under. How are you Thank going? You.
4: Uh, very good, very good. My first visit to Northern.
2: Excellent, okay. You're flying all around the world with Everywhere Airbus? Everywhere but and... here. Wow, okay. Well, it had to happen sooner or later. Sooner or right? later. <laughs> here we are. Robin, you're with uh, Airbus in the corporate jet And Correct. you're one of the lead pilots here. Uh, yep, I've been flying,
4: I flew Airbus A320 number three 23 years ago. I've been flying for Airbus for nearly 20 years, and I was head of training for Airbus for 10 years And I'm now the chief pilot of the Airbus Corporate Deputy.
2: Excellent. How did you get into flying with Airbus? What got you started flying?
4: Because I was flying, I was flying the aircraft for customers, for, for airlines, and in the very early days I was involved in the entry into service of the airplane with several customer airlines, so I knew the Airbus pilots well. And as happens in this in this world, you find yourself between jobs, <laughs>
2: <Yes>.
4: <laughs> and uh, I found myself looking for a job and I knew the Airbus people so I, I, uh, I, I came to work for Airbus initially as a training captain. Okay.
2: And uh, so now we're currently sitting in the cockpit of this a oh, 319, 319. Yes. Yep. now you're telling me that this is completely standard aircraft.
4: The aircraft is essentially a standard airplane. It, it's, very small changes are made in the, in the production run, depending on the fuel requirements for the, for the customer. But the airplane is essentially a standard aircraft with additional the capability
2: of additional fuel. Okay, and I understand that the additional fuel is carried in some cargo containers.
4: We, carry, we can carry six additional tanks. Five is the, is the most that most would normally carry but the customer will decide, depending on his mission, how many tanks he wants. And the tanks are essentially standard cargo containers, so they move in and out, they can be put on, taken off, you can have three, you can have five, really depends whether you want to carry cargo space or not.
2: About how long does it take to change in and out a couple of containers?
4: You can do it overnight, basically. It's it's not something which you can do in a two-hour turnaround, but it's an overnight exercise.
2: If, in, if indeed the person comes back with a bit more shopping than they expected, it's a... a little bit more complicated than that. But yes, <laughs> you can't. But you can choose not to pull a tank, or
4: uh, no. The, 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 you either have the you either have the space available or you don't. So okay. you either have you want three tanks, then you have cargo space. If it's if it's you, the wife, and carry-on baggage, five tanks, no problem. If you turn up with a truckload of shopping, then the truckload has to go somewhere, and so the the mission would be three tanks or five tanks, but it would be there more or less on a long-term basis. You wouldn't be changing tanks on a a regular basis.
2: So, now this is a completely standard Airbus cockpit. (coughs) Absolutely standard. But there's got to be some way of controlling the extra fuel. Yep. So can you show us how that's done? Yep.
4: The extra fuel, we have a controller on the roof here. In fact, the whole system is fully automatic, so I don't actually control anything in exactly the same way as a standard airliner. I tell the airplane how much fuel I want, and the airplane does it for me. And as long as the system is on, and pumps are on, and the aircraft engines are running, then the fuel delivery is automatic. If I have a problem, then I have a control panel. So the only difference between this airplane and the standard aircraft is the control panel for the fuel system here. And that would only be used if there was a problem with the system.
2: And then it shows you on the screen? And it it.
4: shows me on the screen.
2: Okay, and can you show us what that's for you?
4: The fuel pumps are selected on the roof, and then we have a standard fuel system here with a centre tank, two wing tanks, two tip tanks, and in this case, we have the additional fuel carried in the ACT. Now, this aircraft has three ACTs. In fact, all the airplane tells me is the total fuel in the ACTs, which at the moment is zero quite impressive. Yes.
2: That's the only change.
4: And the airplane is, through your handling, through your system, is fully automated.
2: So effectively, if you're a, a type-rated Airbus pilot in this family of aircraft, <coughs> you could be flying for someone all around the world. Absolutely, yes. That's, that's,
4: that's, yeah. Absolutely. And and if, if you are a type-rated pilot on this aircraft and you fly this airplane today for the first time, it is exactly the same as the one you flew yesterday.
2: So there's no need for any cross training, you've just got no to be need aware cross of yeah, it.
4: You, you should be aware of how the system works. So we would like you please to let's look at the book before you <laughs> before you start. But basically that's all you have to do. Yeah. Yeah.
2: And of course, uh, as we were hearing previously with David, you're able to plug into the uh, Airbus Worldwide Network of Support. Correct. So it's born
5: um, aircraft. This aircraft,
4: we're now number six thousand I think is flying. So we, we have aircraft all around the world, we have servicing all around the world. An aircraft like this, uh, again, it would depend on the owner and how the owner would want to operate. Most owners will carry a flight engineer. The flight engineer will look after the airplane when the aircraft is on the ground. You don't need to carry a flight engineer if you're operating into an area where you know you have servicing capability. So because these aircraft will, the owner would decide he wants to go somewhere tomorrow and that place may not be the most convenient place then they carry an engineer. But quite a few operators will not, because they're flying into major airports, they know they can get servicing, it's a very easy option for them.
2: One final question. Now, you are as chief pilot for the corporate jet line. I guess you're able to fly every Airbus that can become a corporate jet?
4: Every airplane that we make can be a corporate jet and is either flying as or will fly as a corporate jet.
2: So you've got the ratings?
4: Yeah, I have the ratings on all of them, yes. And because of the commonality of the flight there, I can jump from this aircraft to the 330, to the 340, and I see exactly the same thing. The 380 is a more uh, modern presentation of the operation as identical. And so I have a different interface, but I operate the aircraft in exactly the same way. Excellent. So any pilot flying any airbus type can fly any other airbus type,
2: providing he understands how to sit. Captain Robin Percy, thank you very much nice for uh, taking some time to run us through the cockpit. Nice to meet you. Thanks, mate. Yeah, you? Okay. David
6: Value David Welcome to Playing Crazy Down Under. Thank you, and welcome to the Airbus ACJ319, which, as you can see, has the widest and tallest cabin of any business jet. It's absolutely fantastic. Quite an amazing uh, interior that you've got here. I understand that this uh, aircraft is used for uh, uh, corporate charters and so on, uh, VIP charters. Yes, this aircraft is operated by Comlux. It's a Swiss company, and it charters out this aircraft to people that have got... The need to travel in this kind of privacy, comfort, and security. And it's one of a number of companies around the world that have something like 15 Airbus corporate jets available for charter.
2: Okay, now is this a fairly typical interior layout for an Airbus corporate jet? For, I mean, there's always extremes on either end but would this be a fairly typical interior design?
6: Yes, this is representative of the kind of interior that a private customer would choose for their Airbus corporate jet. People are looking to take comfort and space into the sky the kind of comfort space lifestyle that they would have at home or in their office they want to take it with them when they travel and because we have this very wide and very tall cabin we can allow them to put into the cabin that kind of style elegance, comfort and space what people are also typically looking for are practical things like a table at which to to sit either to work or to eat. They're looking for somewhere to sleep, so we have seats that convert into beds. They're looking for somewhere to wash, and so we have uh, a couple of very beautiful bathrooms in this aircraft. Quite spectacular bathrooms. I've honestly got to say I've never seen a bathroom
2: quite so wonderful in an aircraft before, so very impressive. Now, one of the issues in any aircraft is, of course, weight and balance, centre of gravity, etc. So with all of this equipment on board, the beautiful tables and so on. How does that compare to having an Airbus A319
6: with uh, passenger seats and standard uh, domestic operations? You do have to worry about making sure that you've got the right centre of gravity. So that's something you would take care of in laying out the cabin design, where you put the, the office that converts to a bedroom, where you put the club four seats like this and so on. And what we do as a manufacturer is work with cabin outfitter to ensure that centre of gravity is taken care of. As with any aircraft, you're always trying to minimise the weight because an aircraft that is lighter burns less fuel. And as with any aircraft, we're also making sure that safety is taken care of. So for things like flammability and emissions, we're also using materials that meet those standards and everything again with an aircraft has to be engineered properly and also certificated understood and I imagine there's a lot of paperwork involved in getting all those certification levels assessed as So would you reuse um, aspects of materials and designs and so on wherever possible? Yes. There are typical materials like this uh, exotic wood on the table. There are features that's often used. You would use other noble materials like leather. And the idea is to make what is essentially very wide and tall tube into something that's more like a, a home, nice surroundings. Something else we can do which others can't is this domed ceiling. You don't need it for headroom. I'm tall and I'm well below the the ceiling. But it does give a very nice ambiance to all this comfort and space. Gives you that more wide open feeling rather than being trapped in the tube. Breaks up the sight lines.
2: Yes. Okay. Now we're currently in an Airbus A319.
6: That's not the only corporate jets that Airbus produces of course. Um, Every aircraft in your line can be made into a corporate jet. That's right, we have the world's most modern aircraft family and what we do is take that family and transform them into corporate jets. So for this aircraft, the Eversay CJ319, we've made some changes, which includes extra fuel tanks in the cargo holes to give the aircraft intercontinental range. We've given the aircraft, of course, this kind of VIP interior, and we have a n- number of other improvements, such as the high thrust versions of the engine, so we have good takeoff and landing performance, we have got a slightly higher cruise altitude for efficiency and, and better routings, and put that together in a package and you've got in the ACJ 318, ACJ 319, ACJ 320, ACJ 321, a family of aircraft which can offer a lot to the private customer.
2: Now I've seen in your marketing material that there's also an ACJ 380, which means that there's potential out there that somebody could buy the big A380
6: passenger jet that can carry between five and 800 passengers and use it just for themselves. That's right. We have one an order from a Middle East customer for an Airbus ACJ380. That aircraft will have a floor space of about 551 square meters so that's the equivalent probably of about five houses. And the aircraft can be used in different ways. So a government might want a large aircraft because it's going to transport a delegation of, say, 100 passengers. Because when a head of state travels, they will typically travel with their senior government advisors, perhaps also some ministers. You might have industrialists, uh, chief executives of companies as part of the delegation and of course you might have some media too. So for some missions you do actually need a wide body and of course because Airbus has got that very comprehensive modern aircraft family we can offer the customer the size that they need and the comfort that they want. Excellent. As as much opulence as they can afford. And sometimes (laughs) the customer wants an aircraft that's the biggest because he wants to have the biggest and the best. Now, I've seen some of your designs also which have what looks
2: like some classic business class seats. And the whole aircraft is full of those and it's clearly designed for transporting management types and executives but more functional style of transport of of people rather than uh, the so-called
6: big-wig luxury transporters. Yes, you can have uh, corporate shuttles with, say, 48 seats, all business class, or you can do what some governments do, which is to have a small section in the aircraft which is a VIP section, perhaps an office that converts to a bedroom, and the rest of the aircraft is either economy class seating or business class seating. So then the aircraft can do a dual role. It can transport troops or passengers. But it can also do the VIP mission when you need to transport a head of state or a minister. And could those be uh, pluggable modules, so you could wheel, pull that that um, VIP section out and replace it with other seats? Yes, that's another possibility: is to have a VIP kit where you would remove some business or economy seats and install temporarily something like a, an office that converts to a bedroom. So incredibly versatile aircraft to uh,
2: help make sure that executives can be fully functional while traveling around the world and also very good for transporting uh, the team or somebody in total opulence. There's it's
6: quite a range of what you can do with an Airbus corporate jet. Indeed. What we've done, of course, is take an aircraft which is designed to have robust reliability for the rigors of airline service where the aircraft may be flying six, seven, eight sectors every day. So it needs to be very reliable. And of course, that's important to the corporate jet customer. And so we take that and then we support the aircraft with, first of all, the worldwide Airbus support network. We have more than 500 customers and operators around the world on the airline side as well as the corporate jet side. And we have a worldwide network of training centres, of spares centres... And about 170 technical specialists dotted around the world. Yeah. So wherever an Airbus corporate jet customer flies, chances are there's going to be a near nearby airline which can help out if they need a spare part or, or some maintenance, Let's check out, and so on. Yeah, oh, that's excellent. And in terms of versatility, the aircraft is also flying to Antarctica with the Australian company SkyTraders. They fly typically 10 or so missions to and from Antarctica, taking research scientists out to the Antarctic and back in a very fast and efficient way. typically takes uh, something like five hours to fly there and about five hours to fly back, and that compares with 10 hours to get there and 10 hours back if you go by ship so it allows a scientist to perhaps go and do the research without losing a lot of time if you went by ship you'd perhaps be talking a a month or more away if you go by air you could be gone for perhaps a week and in terms of the science that's done You can also achieve things that would not be possible by ship, such as taking ice cores and getting them to the laboratory and doing the science on them before the isotopes in the ice core have lose their time. effectiveness. Yep.
2: It's fantastic effort and amazing what you can do with, uh, with these aircraft. David, thank you very much for coming on the show. I appreciate the fact that you've given us this time on a very busy day, and uh, we look forward to
6: exploring some more of the aircraft now. Thank you for visiting the Airbus ACJ. Thanks, mate. Thank you.
0: Okay, I'm standing here at the stand for the UAV Challenge, and I'm standing here with Anthony Banks. How are you, mate? Uh, good, thank you. Yeah, it's um, great to be here. Yep, having a good time here at Avalon so far. A little, little bit quiet, but hoping it's nice. some better crowds soon. It was mad yesterday. There was like hundreds and hundreds of people that came through and asked questions of the students. Okay, well speaking of students,
7: we've got three young men here, if you could introduce those to our audience. Okay, Uh, well on my left is pilot, UAV pilot Patrick Beaumont, on the extreme left here is Lachlan Matheson, the mission manager and in the middle is young James Adset, crewman. And enjoying the week off school,
0: boys? Yeah. Yeah, Absolutely, better than being at school, isn't it? Now tell us about the UAV challenge, Uh, what's that all about?
7: A,
8: A UAV flies over a pair a 50-gram payload a Mars bar
0: to a lost bushwalk. Right, and you had to design this all yourself? Yes. Yes. So tell us about some of the uh, design aspects, some of the technical challenges that you faced having to do this research.
8: Well, when we have the Mars bar as itself, it tends to tumble when it comes out of the payload delivery system, and when it hits the ground, it can bounce any which direction. So we attached ours to an arrow which allowed a much smoother release and when it hit the ground it stuck or bent for, or moved forward, didn't bounce in a direction.
0: So that was a yeah, good study of uh, physics I guess, yes. aerodynamics that you had to yes. work out for that? Yeah. And you guys are all doing this as part of a physics course or what, what year are you guys in in high school? I'm in grade
8: 11 and these two boys are in grade 9.
0: Right, so you're all into maths and all the good stuff? Yeah. Yep. Now who does the flying? So uh, tell us all about that. Tell us about some of the controls and how you worked out how to design all of that.
8: Not as easy as it sounds just flying squares over hurdles. Um, you have to line it up. I
0: imagine it's not. I don't think I can do it.
8: No, you have to line it up perfectly with the hurdles. So mission manager has the best lineup to drop the drops, either yep. on the wings or underneath. You also, you can't just stop. You have to be on three metres per second. Yep. So you can't just go onto a hover. The boundary is also another factor. So you have to stay inside that. It's smaller than it looks. Yep. And it's quite hard to factor all that into flying. So
0: tell us about your controls, is it your standard radio control model? Are you into that sort of scene before you started this?
8: Not really, I just sort of remember in primary school. I was looking up at these guys flying on the oval and I just thought that's what I want to do.
0: Tell us, how long did it take you to uh, master, you know, doing all of this sort of stuff? You obviously did very well in the challenge, so...
8: It takes years to master, but I certainly have not done that yet. Yeah. Um, Mr Banks over here, he's been doing it for, yeah, yonks.
0: So you've had a good teacher? Yes. Oh, good answer, you'll go well. Now tell us about the job of mission manager.
8: Okay, what I have to do, when Pat's flying the plane, he's allowed, he can be anywhere on the field, and he's allowed to see where it's flying, obviously but he's not allowed to drop, that's my job. I'm in a tent that I can't see the plane from, which is why we had a camera underneath. So I get vision on a TV screen from the camera, and it comes to me on the TV screen, and when the hurdle's about halfway up my screen, I know that's when I drop, so I flip the switch on my transmitter, sends a signal to my receiver on the aircraft, which releases the payload. Right. sends it onto it.
0: Fantastic. It's like for a straw. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, how, many, how many shots do you get at uh, doing the mission? Three, we get. Payload releases for the mission. Right, okay. What was your job again? Okay, James. Now, James, you were the crewman, so what was your job?
8: Um, I had to carry the plane around when Patrick had to land and refit the new drop, and I had to remove a lot of the equipment and fix some stuff.
0: And you did a good job of it? Now, Anthony, um, this is obviously uh, interesting uh, for the kids to do, but obviously very important for their education. It gets people interested in science, physics, aerodynamics, that sort of thing.
7: Yeah, as part of the competition as well, uh, the students have to prepare a technical document, which is due a couple of months before, and also give a, an oral presentation in front of the judges. So there's about three or four judges from CSIRO, uh, QUT for ACRA as well. So it's a real pressure situation. and It puts them under a lot of pressure. And they're very nervous at the start, and then they come through with flying colours and say it's the best thing that they've ever done.
0: Public speaking is quite... A challenge, isn't it? I mean, if nothing else,
7: yeah, yeah. So, there's a lot of skills involved, yeah,
0: and obviously, teachers' leadership skills as well.
7: Yeah, it's uh, so they've got the energy, they've got the enthusiasm. It's just my uh, my job to point them in the right direction, just keep the boundaries uh, fairly well defined and keep them within the boundaries. Yeah, well, you've obviously done an excellent
0: job, and you're down here in Melbourne, so enjoy your week here. Thanks for speaking to us. Yeah, much appreciated. Thank you very much.
2: The need? The need for speed? JetRide Australia is a premier fighter experience in the country and the perfect gift for every budding top gun. From mild to wild, JetRide tailors each flight individually to give you the mind-blowing ride of your life. To make your dream a reality, check out jetride.com.au pcdu or Aussies can call 1300 554 876. JetRide. Forget the rest, fly with the best.
1: PCDU's Avalon 2013 series is brought to you by Avplan. Get more for your EFB. Avsoft.com.au Classic Flight Bag. For those who identify the sky as their office, grab your bag and go. ClassicFlightBag.com Sennheiser. Sennheiser S1 Digital. The quiet revolution in aviation headsets. World Flight Planner. Plan your flight like a pro and get worldwide coverage with World Flight Planner. WorldFlightPlanner.com Eco 2000 ZI 400 Aircraft Colloidal Cleaner. Regular airframe washing is an important part of corrosion protection. And Red Baron Adventures, RedBaron.com.au. Plan
0: your flight, fly your plan with Oz Runways. Oz Runways turns any iPad or iPhone into a full-featured moving map GPS, complete with all the official Australian aviation charts. Oz Runways makes the task of creating and submitting a flight plan a breeze, and can be a great tool for improving situational awareness en route. Annual subscriptions start at only seventy-four ninety-nine, so get your copy today. For your free one-month trial, search for Oz Runways EFB in the iTunes Store or visit ozrunways.com. Oz Aus Runways, know where you're going.
2: Andrew Duggan from In Situ Pacific, welcome to Playing Crazy Down Under. Thanks very much, Andrew. You're with In-Situ Pacific. Can you give us a very quick overview of who In-Situ Pacific are and how long you've been with the organisation?
9: Sure, not a problem. Look, In-Situ Pacific are a uh, wholly-owned subsidiary of Boeing. and We're actually our parent organisation, In-Situ Incorporated back in the United States, and In-Situ Inc. is actually wholly-owned by Boeing. So we're a part of the Boeing company. We're an independent entity, though, so we operate in the, in the UAS market space, as you're aware, with, uh, with UAS products. We've been down here in Australia now since mid-2009, and in essence, we support... In-Situ obviously has a, a worldwide view of UAS... We, uh, we help in situ out with the, the Asia Pacific region in essence, so across as far as the Middle East, up to Japan, Korea, that kind of area, and down through Australia. So that's our remit in terms of where we, uh, we, we're going to market things.
2: And uh, how long have you been in the in situ family?
9: So I joined In-Situ quite back when it started here in Australia. I actually helped stand the organisation up in mid-2009. Uh, prior to that, I actually worked for Boeing. So we, uh, we actually devolved some of the assets away from Boeing and set up in Pacific as a standalone entity.
2: Because I understand that Boeing was in partnership with in at first and like what was happening.
9: And in- always has been, yeah. So Boeing's had a long-term relationship with Institute, supporting them through funding and growing their capability over a number of years. And it came to the point where Institute had to decide whether it was going to you know, go IPO or go some other way. And Boeing, obviously, it was a natural partnership at that point for Boeing to actually buy In-Situ, and that's, that's where all this came from.
2: Now with InSitu, situ pretty much the product that most people are aware of is the ScanEagle. Now I understand the ScanEagle, the unmanned aerial system, ISI intelligence surveillance reconnaissance, great platform for observing the drone, developed from the C-Scan which was actually set up to find fish
9: yeah, interesting history. Uh, the original founders of, of the Institute capability, and sea scan as it was called in those days, saw a need or they were approached by uh, tuna fishermen who currently operate very large vessels up uh, off the coast of Alaska and other areas. They operate small helicopters off those vessels out in the Pacific to try and spot tuna fleets and obviously landing and recovering a small helicopter on a tuna vessel at sea, particularly a rough sea state, is quite dangerous. So it's quite a dangerous job for those pilots and the question mark was, can we use a, a drone, for one be of a better term, or a UAS in this instance to actually go out and spot those tuna without risk of life? So very much a maritime background, and I think some of ScanEagle's flexibility and its ability to operate without runways has certainly been driven from that that maritime focus of can we get on and off a ship reliably, and that's then been translated obviously into the military use you see ScanEagle in today.
2: Now the ScanEagle, as I understand it, is launched from a catapult system. That's right. It's uh, approximately, it looks like one of the really big scale models that you've seen the RC guys do these days, where you see a a gentleman proudly holding a rather large aircraft, so it looks like it's got, what, a six to eight foot
7: wingspan?
9: Yeah, about, that's actually about a ten-foot wingspan from recollection. And the, the fuselage is about six feet long. So, yeah, not a huge UAV, 20-odd kilos, but Moore's law has been in our favour for the last five years. So, you know, what we started out with in ScanEagle in terms of capability we could pack into that airframe has changed dramatically over the last five years. So some of the sensors we've got on board now, some of the intelligence we have on the aircraft now, are a lot, lot better than what we had five years ago. And we continue to advance in the areas of rapid sensor integration as sensors get smaller and more compact and more capable. So more and more, uh, you know, a system like ScanEagle uh, becomes more relevant to a range of scenarios the more we can pack into the airframe.
2: Now, how do you recover Scan Eagle, for instance, if, especially on a ship? You know, we've all seen photos of, uh, of F-14s and things like that coming in with and trapping. I imagine it's not that kind of recovery system, is it?
9: No, well, it's not as big for a start. So um, I think at the end of the day, the system is quite unique. It's what we call a skyhook, and in essence, that's a tension rope, a vertical rope between two points. Um, a lot of other UAEs come back to ships uh, recovering into nets, which is obviously what the, the fail safe is for a fighter aircraft coming back onto a carrier as well. The issue with nets, really, is if, if the ship rolls at the last minute and you miss the net, you hit the ship. So the beauty of the Skyhawk is we can actually swing it out parallel to the course of the vessel, course of the ship, and we actually land parallel to the course of the ship. So if the scanning misses the recovery due to a last-minute wind gust or a roll of the vessel, it just carries on, goes back around, and comes back for another recovery attempt.
2: So the rope's actually vertical. Correct. You might have thought it would be a trapeze horizontally with a dirty great hook on the top. But...
9: Yeah. No, in essence, what happens, we hit that rope on either of the wings, the leading edge of either of the wings. That causes the, the uh, air vehicle to yaw, and that rope then slides down the wing and catches it. An wingtip hook where it just sits there with static. So it's a, it's a vertical recovery in the sense of actually hitting a rope. The impact is not that great. Reality is that rope and the whole system is tensioned and, and uh, uses bungees to actually take some of the, uh, the impact out. So at the speeds we approach at, it doesn't do any damage to the UAS and it's a very reliable way of getting the system back on board the ship.
2: Now, flying the UAS, is it one where you say, just go out to these coordinates, do stuff, or is there a person at a console
0: with a joystick?
9: Look, there's always going to be a person in the loop at this point in time. You know, and a lot of that's to do with airspace regulation and regulators' view of having someone constantly in the loop. But in essence, the aircraft is autonomous. So we, we pre-program mission uh, mission routes, and it's a point-and-click kind of activity. Go here, do this, go here, do this. So it's not what you would call a true hands-on throttle and stick-type operation, where we're just taking the pilot out of the aircraft and put him on the ground, and he's still flying the aircraft from that perspective. It is an autonomous aircraft.
2: So it's going out and navigating to points, doing its mission, it's coming back. Is it able to auto-navigate into that wire, or does that wear...
9: All, all auto-navigation. At the end of the day, what you tend to find is autonomous launch and recovery is the way to go from a reliability perspective. Now, in the early days of US, if you look back at any number of systems that had what we call external pilots, who actually you know, literally piloted the aircraft off the ground and piloted it back onto the ground again, and it's kind of a hard skill to learn. If you ever watch one of those guys having a UAV come at them, well, they're trying to control it in reverse. It's actually very hard, and that's where a lot of incidents occurred. So you'll find most competent or modern UAV companies today are using autonomous launch and recovery. It's just a much more reliable way of getting things on and off the ground.
2: Having, uh, I've got a remote control helicopter and flying remote control aircraft. You know so how they, uh, challenging it is. Yeah, you need to go left, no, it's right, because, oh, too late, tree.
9: <laughs> and the other issue is with most of these U.S., of course, we're using them day and night. So, again, you know, recovery and launch at night time with an external
2: pilot is a challenging game. So is there, like, a homing beacon built into the recovery system and it knows to navigate into that?
9: I really can't go to the technicalities okay. of it, but it is, it is fully autonomous. It uses a range of systems on board to get it back in a reliable way. But, yeah, I can't really go into That's the details of it. Not a problem?
2: Now, the kinds of uh, mission payloads that are on the uh, ScanEagle, is it just a single sensor system or is
9: it multi-sensor? Look, we can use multiple sensors depending on the types of sensors you're talking about. At the end of the day, it, it comes out in the mission sense. So we we, can, we have a range of sensors we can apply to, to ScanEagle now, from electro-optic day-type cameras to infrared night cameras and a range of infrared spectrums as well. You know, small SARs, various other capabilities, radio relay. comms relay is an obvious one for scanning. It's got such a long endurance you can sit up there and act as a comms relay platform for a very considerable period of time. Uh, still cameras. Uh, we've had some very recent success here in Western Australia, flying off the coast, counting uh, dolphins, dugongs and whales using still cameras. So doing surveys of, uh, of wildlife using still cameras on board the system. So it's a very flexible system and we can really put on
2: it whatever we need to suit the mission. Depending on the mission, you'll put a, mission, a payload system on, send it out, and it'll be one type of primary sensor that's on it that's not three
9: or four. Or, or potentially a secondary sensor. And in fact, some of the uh, some of the, the product cards we can show you here shortly will show that we actually have dual sensors as well now. So dual sensor turrets with EOIR. So if you need to do that day-night crossover mission, now that's, that's a capability we do as well. So, really, it just comes out of the mission set. I mean, we'll, we've been out there, as you're aware, probably 600,000 plus combat hours. You can imagine the user feedback over that period of time. So, based on that, we've come up with a whole series of sensors, which users have said this would be really useful, this would be really useful. So, we're pretty happy with the sensor set we have at the moment. Well, oh,
2: that's cool. It sounds really great. And uh, yeah, the ability to have, as you were saying, Moore's Law in your favour, where before you could only have one sensor package, now you can get that secondary as well. And it's absolutely a lot lighter and better.
9: And that's the key point. You know, now we can really do that and do that with very competent sensors. You previously to carry both a large EO and a large IR would have been beyond the weight capability of scanning, well, now we can do it. So Moore's Law is certainly helping us in that fashion.
2: It's used with the ADF. It's come from a a naval kind of environment, Mm -hmm. but I believe the ADF is primarily with the Army being used as a battlefield recon.
9: Yeah, so certainly in the C-scan days, the, the initial aim, as we talked about, was tuna vessels. But uh, the US Marine Corps were the first to pick up the capability as a land-based asset. Again, what made it unique the tuna boats made it very unique for battlefield environments. No, no requirement for runways. In essence, you don't, it's a very fast to set up and operate. It's a very tactical asset. It's very small, hard to see, low altitude. So all of those things were attractive to the Marines, and they deployed it to Iraq in 2005. Following on from that, the Australian Army were the next coalition force to deploy it overseas. So the Australian Army took it into Iraq in 2006 and then moved it. We were actually the first into Afghanistan in 2008 with the Scan Eagle as well. So it's it's got a, a very long pedigree in a land-based environment, but obviously still continues to operate with the US Navy in sea-based environment, and a number of other navies as well, including the Royal Canadian Navy. So it's, it has a pedigree in both areas. I would say most of the hours have been worked up over land. And again, it's its flexibility from a tactical perspective is what makes it attractive in that environment. Now, the ADF have it. It's with their, uh, with the Army. Actually, no, that contract's come to an end. So, in oh. essence, uh, the ADF... Uh, scanning was it was always a gap filler for the ADF. Uh, the ADF, of course, JP129 Phase 2 was always going to be the long-term capability for the Australian Army. And after a series of stop-start activities, I guess they came up with a foreign military sale of, of Shadow 200, which is now their, the official 20STA programme of record for one of a better term. So ScanEagle actually stopped flying in Afghanistan for the ADF uh, April 30th last year. We have continued to support the ADF here in Australia with exercise support activities. Uh, there's obviously a limited number of assets available from the other perspective, so right now we're supporting exercises here in Australia for army soldiers preparing to go overseas so they know what it's like to use a tactical UAV. And we had quite a bit of interest from the Navy who were starting to look at these assets as well. Uh, the Royal Australian Navy, seeing what the US Navy are doing and saying, well, we might want to experiment a little bit with that as well and see how we go. So, you know, that, that's really where we're focusing on now is the, the Australian Navy has an interest in this. We also think it's got a lot of applicability for commercial operations offshore and even Border Protection Command. I mean, it's a small, flexible asset. You can launch off small vessels... So we think there's a lot of other uses for it here in Australia, but in essence, the Australian Army, our, our work with the Australian Army will come to an end here uh, in August. Our final exercise will be flown.
2: Well, hopefully the Navy kicks in because uh, it looks like a pretty impressive system. And Approximately how much... Are you able to talk all park pricing it could be for a unit and...
9: It's a really a how long's a piece of string question. Um, a lot of people sort of think it's about the cost of the air vehicle, but it's not. Uh, there's so many aspects of the cost, from the cost of the aircraft themselves through the ground support equipment, the control equipment, and even the crews. I mean the way we've operated this system for so long has been as a service-based type activity, which means we show up with crews, aircraft, and effectively we fly and just provide imagery. And what is paid for is in essence the imagery.
2: So, um, so you put civilian contractors into a field of operations?
9: Yeah, so certainly when we were flying for uh, in Iraq and Afghanistan and you know for the US DOD we continue to do this, we put field service reps in those environments. Obviously, uh, they are protected by the military service they're, they're serving, but in essence, they are tasked by that military to provide data on certain areas at certain times. So it's a very close relationship, and it works very well what it gives the military is the ability to very flexibly and quickly stand up a UAS or an ISR capability and then switch that off when they want to pull back out. So it's been a very successful model which we've applied over a number of years. Obviously as the war in Afghanistan starts to wind down now, we're finding ourselves moving more into a traditional acquisition and through life support mode. So you'll see more and more customers purchasing scalable systems for their own use and coming out with a more traditional buy the equipment and then supporting through spares and training and other activities in country.
2: Are you able to without giving specifics rough range so the, the launcher and so on, is that like a couple of hundred kilometres, 500 kilometres roughly away from where?
9: So it's a line of sight capability. Look, roughly we can get out to around anywhere between sort of 1,800 and 1,20 kilometres. Depends on line of sight conditions. Again, so you've got the curve of the earth, which slows you down at a certain point. But it is a line of sight system, and I think that's the key differentiator from other bigger uh, UAS that your, your readers or viewers might be familiar with. You know systems like Predator and Global Hawk obviously have satellite control, so they go longer, but clearly they're much bigger and more expensive. So it's all that trade off at the end of the day.
2: Yeah, it's, yeah it's, it's certain tools are better for certain gigs. That's right. Speaking of the certain tools perspective, I note that you've got the I believe it's the Integrator. 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 Yeah. I know, Thank you. That's right. I, I note that you've got the Integrator uh, on display here, and it looks like the Scan Eagle's bigger brother.
9: So in essence, you'd be right. Probably the key point here is that uh, that Integrator is actually also designated RQ-21A and has actually won the, uh, the small ta- the US Navy, US Marine Corps Small Tactical UAV Program of Record. So Program of Record in United States DOD parlance is a long-term acquisition of a, of a system. Um, and so Integrator will fulfill that role for the US Navy and US Marine Corps for probably the next 20-odd years, I suspect. So that's that's a very big win for in situ and for Boeing. Um, and obviously, off the back of that, that system will receive a lot of development that will work on it. But if you look at Integrator itself, the air vehicle, again, I get back to the- that user feedback over the 600,000 hours and a lot of that was what drove the development of the integrator. That need to carry a larger multi-payload type capability, the ability to swap payloads in and out very quickly depending on the mission set. So if you look at the integrator it has a very big uh, empty payload bay where we can flexibly put payloads in and out very rapidly. A lot of older UAS tend to have a very tightly uh, integrated infrastructure and if you want to swap something out it's not a simple process. certainly can't be done in the field. So a lot of those lessons learnt came into the development of integrator. It was that user feedback that really drove the development system. But certainly its aim is a carrier a much bigger multi-sensor payload than what the scanning will carry yeah. can.
2: Heavier load, longer duration but still again within the line of sight environment.
9: And also with the same tactical flexibility so still with the catapult, still with the skyhook, still no runways, still the long endurance. So all those advantages we have with
2: scanning well, but bigger payload. Yeah. And uh, how do you see that potential going for the ADF? you see, see that as being something Army might want
9: to Look, we've always been keen to market the capabilities and here. Army is very familiar with Scandigal and the user interface. Um, Integrator, I think, is a system that I suspect would draw some interest. But the reality is, of course, you'd have to talk to the, uh, the ADF about what's in the DCP. And the DCP, of course, rules the roost when it comes to what funding might be available. So, uh, you know, as the ADF sort of pulls back more from Afghanistan and looks to a more sort of peacetime-type operating rhythm and environment, the DCP will inform where they go in terms of US purchases in the future. We'll always be here. We'll always have the capability. I suspect the ADF will show an interest in what the US Marine Corps and US Navy do with the integrator and probably learn some lessons from that and see where they go from there. Again, you know, potentially the Royal Australian Navy might be a, might be a user of the system down the track. So, but really, that's a question t- you'd have to go and ask the Navy and the Army and, and see what their thoughts are on that.
2: Exactly. Andrew, thank you very much for coming on the show.
9: You're welcome. Appreciate thank your
2: you.
0: Okay, we're on board the uh, KC-30A under here with uh, Flying Officer Brent Jones. Brent, uh, can you tell us a bit about the uh, refuelling operation that went on today? Yeah, so we had uh,
5: two F-18 Hornets from my home squadron, uh, 77, back in Raffa Williamtown join us uh, overhead east sail before the air show. Uh, so they've pretty much just demonstrated the uh, air-to-air
0: refuelling capability of the Classic Hornet um, uh, for you guys today. And they did a very good job of it, very spectacular. Now, uh, this is obviously tasked as a training mission for your guys when they took off from ASAR? Um, yeah, it was. We, uh, we sort of did it in conjunction with bringing the jets down to the air show. So they'll uh, be heading back to Avalon now. They'll probably beat us back and we'll see them on the ground. Yep. Now, you're obviously a fighter pilot yourself and you're uh, obviously qualified to uh, do aerial refuelling uh, yourself. Can you tell us a bit about the training involved? Yeah, so we learn to uh, refuel
5: once we get to the Hornet. Uh, it's the first time I refueled, uh, which was towards the end of our operational conversion. Um, it's sort of the one flight regime or task that we can't practice in the simulator. Uh, the only way we get better at it is by spending time behind the basket. Um, as a trainee, I, I actually did find it quite difficult initially. Uh, it's probably one of the harder things that we do do uh, with the jet domestically. Um, but again, yeah, just spending some time behind the basket,
0: you, you become a lot more comfortable and most, uh, most of the guys now are pretty proficient. How often would you train for this sort of operation, obviously, to get these aircraft up in the air? It's obviously an expensive exercise. How many hours a month, say, would you practice doing air-to-air refuelling?
5: Hard to say month. It's kind of uh, program-dependent, so most squadrons will have one big exercise, sometimes two a year, in which we'll get tanker support, Um, and then there's scope to request tanker support in between. Uh, So if we're looking to do some long-range strikes or do some air-to-air where we want to make. Check the vital point for longer. We'll ask for air refuelling so we can uh, stay airborne longer to do so. Um, but it's really program dependent, so I couldn't give you a figure per month. Um, but it's uh, we certainly don't have any issues with
0: remaining current. Yep. And obviously mentoring. We know that's a big part of uh, the fighter pilot training program. Do you have your guys in here in the uh, in the tanker overseeing and grading what you're doing?
5: Um, not so much but uh, if there's any junior guys in the squadron uh, they'll always sort of be on the wing of a, of a more senior pilot so as you know you'll never really see a Hornet by itself at the tanker they will always be in a formation uh, whether it's two or four at a time and uh, within that formation there's always one aircrew crew that's uh, got more experience and they can provide feedback
0: and uh, talk us through it if they're having any issues. We've talked to uh, fighter pilots before, and they've talked about coming up against, uh, coming up and refueling to older airframes, and they, they talk a lot about a bow way behind the aircraft. Do you find that's uh, the case with the KC-30?
5: No, not so much. So it's actually pretty comfortable tanking off the KC30. Um, there's no wake to affect. The air is quite clean behind. Um, the only wake that becomes a concern for us is actually self-generated. So as we move forward towards the basket, uh, the wake of our nose we actually push the basket out of the way, which will create some issues. Um, so if there's any wake, it's created by us, and not the tank. of the
0: tank is quite clean. Well, it's a fascinating, uh, something really fascinating to watch. And we really appreciate you uh, showing us through it today. No worries. Hope you enjoyed it. Thank you.
5: the keyhole with
2: Papa Smurf. Papa Smurf. How are you? Uh, Not bad, mate. Come to hassle you once again about uh, what's up in the keyhole today as we come to the end of Wednesday, day two. Well,
10: we've got a couple of things disappeared and a couple come in. We had the 767 from the Japanese Self-Defense Force depart back home.
2: They're not coming back? Not coming back.
10: And we had a couple of Hornets drop in unexpectedly. The new ones, the 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 old F-18A Classics decided to drop in and because the ADF were busy at the time we looked after them for it.
2: Were they the ones that had been uh, refuelling with the uh, KC-30 for the I'd say play? they had, yeah. yeah. Okay, and I think that was one of them that just got towed down on for static.
10: Yes, uh, certainly okay. was. 77 Squadron and one of them's got a fancy painted tail at yeah, the moment. Yeah,
2: I think that's the one that went to static. Yep,
10: looks Very good, nice. it does. And on the front where they usually put the pilot's name it's got Wing Commander Creswell's name. Huh. Dick Creswell was uh, yeah. fairly fine famous ace from 77 squadron. In World War II. In World War II. He was Two. flying
2: P-40s, wasn't he? Yep.
10: Yeah, very famous well, yeah. name, that one. But and other than that, uh, the keyhole key- has been pretty much the same all
2: day. Uh, uh, the
10: Kiwi 757? Oh, we had that in, yes. Yeah, that um, was transient. What we commonly call the sheep pen.
2: That's it. I heard sheep pen and sheep shack, and yep. did they have any trouble with their uh, stairs this time? No. No? They, no, they, they, they went which side?
10: They used our the stairs. But
2: otherwise pretty quiet in the keyhole?
10: Yeah, pretty quiet, but oh, a little bit of turmoil occasionally, but that's normal.
2: Now, the, the, at one point, I believe you had two KC-30s in there. Not in the keyhole. Uh,
10: on Alpha 6, which is over by the Jetstar terminal, we had one over there that was uh, going up for a media shoot.
2: OK, what, what do you think is going to happen tomorrow? Oh,
10: same as today.
2: Yeah. Only better. Anything uh, that you know of that's due in? To
10: be honest, I don't know what's coming tomorrow. Haven't uh, seen the sheet, So it'll all be a surprise to me when I come into work in the morning and have a look at the sheet and see what's supposedly coming and whether it actually (laughs) does come because of the weather. We have had a couple of little things this morning, uh, like some areas have been a little bit wet. We haven't been able to park the light aircraft where we wanted to so we've rearranged ourselves and instead of a car park we've now got a, an aircraft park
2: i did notice there was a uh, a little piper warrior in fact yep. i think it's still Parked there over in the back of the buffalo yeah it's, but yep. it's sort of on the grass between the b52 and the kc135 yeah. it looks uh, looks kind of lost
10: some of them we've bought up here and uh, just put them off uh, taxiway charlie Because it's a little bit drier here, thank
2: goodness. Very handy. I I hear that Avalon East is closed at the moment. Yes, that's why we're getting them. Papa Smurf, thank you very much. Appreciate the chat at the end of a busy day. It's a pleasure.
6: And now it's time
2: for Timbo's Tarmac. Timbo, Wednesday afternoon. How's the Tarmac?
7: Drying, thankfully.
2: That's a good thing. Yeah, I was just chatting with Papa Smurf about that. It's good to see that a little bit of wind and a little bit of sunshine here and there and the
7: grass and the Tarmac are all drying out. Yeah, quick, uh, quick storm last night, but it didn't seem to affect us too much today, so we just got to hope the weather continues to break and things will look better. Cool.
2: Well, we're going to try and squeeze this one in around uh, four Super Hornets doing a uh, formation demo. What else? What's new today? It looks like you got a pair of DC-3s, C-47s.
7: One C-47, one DC-3, yeah. Oh, uh, tra- 50, 50. Trapo's C-47 and uh, the old Qantas DC-3. Oh, the, is that the Horden one there? Yes, Horden. TAA one. That's the one. Yep. Been on that
2: one. It's beautiful. So have I. Yeah. So nothing
7: else on the Warbirds tarmac today? No, uh, one's gone into stealth mode, so Alan Arthur's P-40's arrived, and that's tucked up in the hangar, which will come out tomorrow. OK, so it's
2: sitting up with the uh, with the boomerang and the um, the sweatfire. Correct, yep. it is, yeah. OK. They'll come out and play later?
7: Yes, otherwise it's all been fairly quiet, apart from a uh, stearman that decided to have a bit of an engine failure on mid, mid-practice. Yeah,
2: sort of off-field landing of the day.
7: Yeah, looks yeah. like they had to make a road to get him out, though. They sent the a truck with a tipper and everything over there oh, to wow. move him, but it's that's almost out now.
2: Oh, that's good. Well, the Raptor did his demo today. and uh, He did.
7: Didn't do his high display there today, so uh, we've still got uh, a few tricks up his sleeve that we haven't seen yet, but uh, that'll be a good one when we do see it.
2: Even his Low Show was still capable of just stopping Avalon in its tracks, the display halls emptied, the media tent emptied, everything emptied. People were coming out of the woodwork to just stop and watch.
7: Yeah, I think on the Low Show is uh, rate of turn and that really slow high offer pass are the ones to watch for
2: pretty interesting to see. So I'm looking forward to seeing the high high shows soon. Hopefully these uh, clouds will clear in the next day or so and we'll get to see the high activity.
7: Forecast for a good weekend, so we'll get the full displays in then.
2: Well mate, as the four Super
7: Hornets fade off into the distance, uh, I think we'll wrap it here and uh, come back and see you tomorrow. Yes, yeah, so I think time for us to fade off into the distance as well and prepare for uh, a quiet night in.
2: Yeah, I've heard of this myth with uh, ground operations, guys. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure We'll be seeing you bright and early, chipper and ready to go tomorrow morning.
7: Devil, but we'll try. <laughs>
2: Thanks for everything, mate. All right, mate. Thanks, Grant.
7: See ya.
0: Well, there we go, Grant. It sounds like uh, Timbo and Papa Smurf were just a little bit busier today than they were yesterday.
2: Oh, just a tad, mate. A few extra things to do. But on the whole pretty much uh, par for the course for the early stage of uh, an Avalon show uh, things will start getting a bit more busy for them as uh, we progress into the weekend
0: Now it was interesting uh, getting up there on the tanker flight and watching the, the air-to-air refuelling. We actually flew out to about uh, 15,000 feet and uh, the crew took us out over uh, RAF Base East Sail. It didn't take us long of course to get down there probably 15 minute transit I suppose to get out to the airspace there. It is very interesting when you get on the uh, the KC30A it's, uh, it's basically a modified A330 Airbus and uh, interestingly when you, probably in the back half of the aircraft uh, well it's it's just decked out like your, like any other uh, Qantas airliner. In fact uh, nice airline seats, no in-flight entertainment unfortunately <laughs> and as one of the, uh, the crew members explained to me, she said well there is the weight penalty of course to consider but she said also that's just more things that uh, could possibly go wrong and if uh, the something on the IFE decided to go unserviceable well, that would basically US the entire aircraft so uh, not a good look. Yeah so I think everybody when they're doing transits, this aircraft I was on had uh, recently just come back from exercises over Guam and I think uh, lots of iPads were being carried on the aircraft uh, for in-flight entertainment. That's very Jetstar of them. It is very Jetstar. Uh, interesting, though, to get out there, and uh, you know, I was right at the back there, and it's difficult to get camera shots. So uh, we did try and get as many camera shots as we could, but uh, you know, they are only small windows, and when they put the drogue lines out, well, they're actually they, they actually go quite a fair way back behind the aircraft. So uh, when the two uh, Hornets did come up and formate on the aircraft, um, it was a little difficult to see them at times, but it was still uh, very very interesting to look at. And when they 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 sort of tuck in quite uh, mm. close behind. On the aircraft and you know you can see the pilot there concentrating hard and uh, a very very interesting process to watch i must say
2: yeah it was definitely reach out that window and touch
0: you just about could have and and for our listeners i'm going to
1: have to say something on this podcast that i never thought i would ever say I've fallen in love with an aircraft.
0: Okay, tell us uh, about well, that one, mate. No, yeah. I've
1: actually fallen in love with the
2: inside of an aircraft. Ah, so the outside sound you've fallen in love with is a Super Hornet, if I remember correctly. From yes, pretty much. Yes, yes, that was what got Big me. But grunty.
1: the inside is definitely the inside of the ACJ319. It was stunning. It looks better than my own. In fact, it is larger than my own house. It's quite
2: incredible. Yeah, that was a, a lot of fun this morning, hanging out... In in the inside the uh, Airbus corporate jet, the ACJ319. And basically, it's an Airbus A319 with that beautiful, uh, wide, Bling. high uh, cabin has been completely blinged out and uh, very much a corporate environment, space to entertain, space to work. Uh, I believe it's certified for 19 passengers, uh, bed down the back. And the uh, we thought that the bathroom up the front was rather uh, well decked out, but... Uh, I think you've found a new throne, haven't you? Yes, it's in the tail section, and I think, other well, the listeners will find out in due course. <laughs> yeah, we had some fun in there recording a couple of uh, supplemental view of the lounge segments, and uh, yes, uh, young, young Mr. Simmons here was definitely in his element.
0: Absolutely. Now, uh, Ben, we've been all running around doing all these cool things today. What did you get up to today at uh, Avalon? So we
5: went out and spoke to the uh, guys at Cirrus Aircraft and uh, had a look at a senior 22 turbo and that is a very very nice aircraft
0: and you and atc Ben have recorded a couple of interviews there that we're going to store up until a few episodes from now and uh, what else did you get up to i think you've been doing a good job of uh, carting cameras and uh, recording equipment around all day yes yeah, so i've been a bit of a packing mill for myself today um plenty of still shots a couple of gigs worth of photos actually taken today Okay, we'll have to uh, make sure we get those up into our Flickr stream for everyone to look at.
2: Yeah, definitely need to. I've been loading a couple of photos there, but we've got to get the rest of them in. But uh, one very uh, unusual occurrence at the end of the day was uh, we were down at the media blister, the little space where the uh, media gather on the flight line to get some good video and photos and so on. And we ran into a Chinese guy by the name of Peng. And I was chatting with him, and it turns out that he speaks Spanish because he speaks Chinese, English, and Spanish. And the gentleman has been been living in Spain for a while. He's from the Chinese Aviation Network. And so he and I started chatting away in Spanish and we recorded a bit of that. Uh, we'll put that out as a bit of a separate fun video for those who speak Spanish, uh, especially our friends at Edo Podcast.
0: Watching you do that interview was fascinating, of course. Grant uh, speaks Spanish pretty well seeing as you lived in Argentina for a couple of years.
2: I speak Spanish better than you do, mate. Let's just put well, it that way. Well, and everybody speaks Spanish
0: better than I do, mate. Well, well Peng sure. was very polite about uh, my uh, poor Spanish. <laughs> You could see him cringing occasionally off camera. Oh, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> now, the other thing that might have made a few pilots cringe today was the uh, Breitling Wingwalkers. In fact, um, I think one of the Wingwalkers may have had a longer walk than she bargained for. Uh, as
2: mentioned in uh, Timbo's Tarmac, uh, where one of the stearmen had an engine failure, that was actually one of the Breitling Wingwalker aircraft. Uh, engine cut out uh, during the show. They had a uh, off-field landing in a paddock near Avalon Airport. And, uh, yeah, they, everyone was okay, all, all fine. And as a result, they've uh, they've had to uh, send some uh, earth-moving gear down to make a bit of a road that they could get into, get the aircraft, and retrieve it. At the end of the day, it was last seen uh, being towed over the runway back into the uh, tarmac area and uh, I guess we'll see where they're at tomorrow.
0: Yeah, hopefully uh, we'll get a chance to uh, talk to those guys uh, a bit later on in the week. We've we've put in the request and it's looking reasonably hopeful so uh, let's hope we can get uh, both those aircraft uh, serviceable and back in the air because uh, they are stunning looking. Ah. The steermen's a classic looking airframe for a start but uh, you get out and have a look at the uh, the Breitling aircraft. They are very well maintained. They look fantastic.
2: And they don't look too bad with the uh, rather attractive young ladies perched on the top wings so yeah it's it's a wonderful look and they do a good show uh definitely that one's being set up for us there's a number of items on our wish list and our calendar is filling up quite a busy day tomorrow as well uh lots of really good stuff but we'll be telling you about that tomorrow
0: absolutely so we'll wrap up uh, episode 102 avalon 2013 day two we'll be back tomorrow with day three coverage
2: you have been listening
1: to Plane Crazy Down Under's Avalon 2013 series. Look for our video coverage on our YouTube channel, YouTube slash Plain Crazy Down Under, and follow all the Avalon action on Twitter at the hashtag Avalon13. Contact us anytime with feedback, suggestions, or advertising inquiries at plaincrazydownunder at gmail.com. Plane Crazy Down Under is a Southern Skies online media podcast.
10: Hey, Billy, I'm off air. I'm off air. Oh,
2: all right. Uh, pause for a second.